Tonight we have two readings. The first comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The second reading for tonight is from 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is God's word. Beth, thank you. Let me add my welcome. If we've not met, my name's uh, Matt Fuller. I'm a senior pastor here. Uh, we're looking at a couple of things. It might be, if you've got a spare bit of paper, you might want to shove it in 1 John 4, but turn back to Genesis 2. If you are joining us tonight, uh, we're breaking our usual habit of really working through books of the Bible and uh, allowing God to speak passage by passage. We're in a, a short topical series for, uh, for four weeks, uh, really, which is just looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. So we're really spending a month on three verses, um, which may be overkill. Uh, but there are issues of who we are and human identity and what it means to be made in the image of God. And they're very tender issues and they get to the heart of who we are. So we're not wanting to rush it, but we're spending a little bit of time here. So slightly different uh, for this month. Let me uh, again lead us in prayer uh, and then we'll look at this together. Our great God and Father, 
What a delight it is to sing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a delight to sing of you, our God, uh, the one who is our rock and our redeemer, the one whom we can build our lives upon, who doesn't change, who doesn't shift with the fashions of culture, but is utterly dependable, reliable, and is true. You're a rock and you're our redeemer, the one who in the Lord Jesus Christ would come and give his life for us. There's no one who loves us like you, no one who comes close. And so we ask, uh, speak to us, speak tenderly, change us, so that we understand more of what it means to be in your image and love to live that way. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. So in the month we call this series True to Self, question mark. Uh, what does it mean to be true to self? It seems to me, I may have said this before, that uh, in the 21st century, the, uh, the three great commandments, particularly in the area of sexuality, are these. Uh, one, you must be true to yourself and uh, therefore refuse to have any moral code forced upon you by anyone else. Can't allow that. Must be true to yourself. Uh, two, thou shalt not condemn anyone else's lifestyle for condemning others is the great sin for their morals. So thou shalt be true to yourself. Thou shalt not condemn uh, anyone else for how they live. And, and thirdly, if you have consent, you can do whatever you like. Seems to me those are the three great morals or commandments of the 21st century in regard of sexuality. Uh, but we started to think last week this idea of being true to yourself, which is so common. As Oprah Winfrey made a big speech at uh, uh, was it the Golden Globes and was uh, fated for doing so her speech, and uh, people were saying, "Yay, Oprah for president!" Because TV stars as presidents they go down really well, and. Um, uh, uh, but it was high, you know, the, I read a little thing with her afterwards, and she was asked about mistakes and regrets. She said, Ah, oh, the thing I regret most in my life listening to the opinions of others. Now I've learned the only thing that matters is to be true to myself. And that is a very common sentiment. I don't know what that means. So uh, I don't mean to be a, a lazy analyst or, or make a political point. I just observed um, in the paper this week, uh, someone, some White House insider declared that 2018 is the year when the president is going to go full Trump. Until now, he's been uh, refraining and toning down his rhetoric thus far, and now he's going to go full Trump. Now, in the light of that, I didn't see any secular commentators saying, you go for it, Donald. You be true to yourself. Let's have more of those comments about Haiti that went down so well. Let's go, go for it. Be true to yourself. I don't see anyone saying that if they don't like the opinions. What does it mean? It only makes sense if there's some external code you live to. So we thought last time, wonderfully, we've been given our identity as humans by God. If you're given a good identity, okay, be true to that. You know, a, a member of the public is commissioned as a police officer. 
That's their identity. We want them to be true to themselves as a police officer, i.e. not corrupt. In that sense, if you're given an identity, yeah, of course you want to be true to it. God has given us an identity as humans, and we want to be true to that. But to be true to yourself with no external values, just whatever you feel like, I just must be uh, authentic to my own emotions. What does that mean? You're just adrift on an ocean of ambiguity. It's very lonely, actually. It's a very strange expression. So here we are in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, particularly these verses 26 to 28, considering what it means to be made in the image of God. Last time we thought mostly about we're made for glory, that is we're made to enjoy God's glory, share his glory, particularly as we rule this planet in his place. But tonight I want to think about the other element, key element in Genesis 1, is that we're made for intimacy. This is so important in the 21st century. I think the assumption of many, and I assume probably many in this room also, is this. If I can't have a consensual sexual relationship with whoever I want, then I will be denied human fulfillment. Most people in our culture assume that. I'm guessing lots of people here think that too. If I can't have a consensual sexual relationship with whoever I want, I'll miss out. I'm denied human fulfillment and intimacy. That is such a rampant assumption. So if I want to have an adulterous affair, I must be true to myself. I must be. Uh, And so I must do it. If I want a same-sex relationship, I must be true to myself, and so I must do it. If I want a polygamous marriage, if I want an incestuous sex, underage sex, and there's consent, I must do it, because I must be true to myself. I must be true to myself. I must not allow anyone to impress a moral code upon me. Don't you tell me my lifestyle's wrong. I will rage at you if you do so, because no one's allowed to tell me that my lifestyle's wrong. And if there's consent, why not? That's how people think. And the justification for all sorts of sex is often the same. Heterosexual sin, homosexual sin. People say, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? I feel in my heart that I want to have this affair and leave my wife, and God wants me to be happy. I'm a woman, I want to sleep with this other woman, God wants me to be happy. So that's okay. I must be true to myself. The justification is always that. We look at it like this. God made us for intimacy. Intimacy helps us in our job of ruling. And then question, where will you find intimacy? Not particularly memorable. Sorry about that. But let's work through it. First thing, God made us for intimacy. Let's start in Genesis 1. And our key verses, uh, really 26 to 28, is where we are really at all month long. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, unlike every other, uh, every other day in the creation account, God says, and it was so, this one is different, let us make. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living thing. 
two main elements to being in the image of God. We represent him by ruling. Can you get that there in verse 26 and verse 28? Rule over the planet. So that's the first. We represent God by ruling. And the second element of being in the image of God is we relate like him. So we're made to rule, made for a relationship. We thought last week primarily about the first, that we rule. So we're crowned with glory and honor. We're thinking mostly tonight about how we relate to one another in the image of God. Now, uh, I've tried to put things in a little table. Verse 27 is the focus of this. Do you see basically in verse 27, uh, the same thing is said three times. You might think it's a little repetitive, but it makes quite an important point. So uh, on your sheets, or uh, uh, there we are, on the screen as well. Um, Do you see how it goes? So God created, subject, verb, man, object, Oh, no, it's like being back at school. Just bear with me. Just bear with me. God created subject, verb, man, object, description. How? Let's keep it simple. In his image. The same thing gets said, but in a different order. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So do you see, I've put the number threes, in his image is the same as in the image of God, is the same as male and female. You see that? So to be in his image is to be male and female. Not meaning that God is male and female, but he's three in one. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is different. They cannot be equated. And yet they're equal. Three and one. Humanity is two in one, male and female. And there is something about the sameness and yet difference of male and female that helps us understand the sameness and difference in God. The duality of sexes helps us in some sense understand the plurality of persons in God. Most importantly... At the heart of God is community. At the heart of the living God is love between Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the most important thing about being in his image in in, in this sense. And the point is, therefore, mankind is made for community too. We're not meant to be on our own. Isolated individuals are incomplete. Humans are meant to live with others. Human life only reaches its fullness in community. We're made for intimacy. Self-fulfillment is a contradiction in terms. According to the scripture, self-fulfillment is an oxymoron. It cannot be. We're not meant to be self-fulfilled. There is an inner restlessness in all of us for love, affirmation, intimacy, because we're made for community in the image of God. For he is community, Father, Son, and Spirit. We find that love in knowing God and in in relationship with others. So you see the sort of echoes of this elsewhere in the Bible. What is the greatest commandment? It is to love the Lord your God, or someone's strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We're made for relationship with God and relationship with other people. Those are the two things that matter. We need both. And here's the issue. The problem with the idea of being true to self is you, you can't have both radical freedom, autonomy, and intimacy 
You can't have freedom as an individual and intimacy with others. It's obvious. If you want to be in a relationship with someone, you have to, we have to give up some freedoms. You've got to commit to be there with them. You can't just do what you want. It's fairly obvious. So I've read recently about the rise in sologamy. Have you read about this? Um, it's a silly word, really. Sologamy, that is uh, women marrying themselves. It's quite rare for a man to marry himself, but women marrying themselves. So I read an interview with Sophie Tanner, who made public vows in front of 20 bridesmaids and different bouquets. And there's a great title to the, uh, to the article, uh, Women Putting the Eye in Isle. A-I-S-L-E. Um, <laughs> um, the punters had fun. So this is an increasing trend. Uh, And so Sophie Tanner made vows in front of others to love herself, cherish herself, and pleasure herself. The article commented, so far, most self-weddings seem to last. Well, well done. Well done. There's something pretty phenomenal. Human beings are quite selfish. And if I get to marry myself, I can do what I want. Unless you're Gollum and start arguing with yourself all the time, you're going to be okay. Sophie Tanner had just celebrated her two-year wedding anniversary. What did you do for your wedding anniversary? I had a night in with the wife. That is myself. Now, that's a bit strange. Uh, One other woman was interviewed in the article, uh, Rachel. Uh, She said, yes, I had to get a divorce last year from myself in order to marry a man. Now, you could say, well, there we go. It's a good excuse for a party. Any excuse for a party is a party, isn't it? A party is a party is a party. And uh, if you want to marry yourself, why not? Um, well, of course, the article, one of the common things in all the people they interview is, uh, I always dreamt of having my big day. And now I realized I can have my big day without having to share it with anyone else. Okay. Now, there's a sort of radical autonomy. But you'll never be happy. In that, self-fulfillment is impossible. We all need others. God made them, God made us in his image, male and female, and it instills in us a restless drive to pursue relationships. Now, here's the important caveat that you need to understand. Please hear this. This sense of incompleteness in all of us is not in the Bible primarily fulfilled by marriage. Marriage is one way and one part of finding intimacy, but not all. More of that. Intimacy, sorry, God made us for intimacy. Intimacy helps us to rule. Let's explore this a bit more. There's a danger if you can pull apart in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, these two senses are being made in God's image. This idea of, uh, of ruling and uh, relating like him. You've got to hold them together. And you get the same sense of it in Genesis chapter 2, which is why we had that read. I follow through with me the, the logic of how it works. Chapter 2, verse 15, Adam's given a task. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. He's given a task. That he's given a command. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, not must eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll, when you'll eat, uh, you'll, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He's given a task. He's given a command. Verse 18. The Lord makes an observation. 
The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. That is the Lord's observation. It's not that Adam's there going, well, it's a very big garden. I'm not going to do it myself. Well, it's quite tough to use it myself. I'd like someone else, please. Could I have someone else? Could I have someone else to help me the garden? That is not what happens. Adam doesn't sit there saying, well, I've put in eight hours. I'm feeling a bit bored now. I'd quite like someone to talk to. Could I have someone to talk to, please, God? Uh, it's not what happens. The Lord observes it's not good for the man to be alone. Because you cannot, humanity cannot, on, no, excuse me, one human cannot carry the image of God on his own. Because male and female carry the image of God. And so God creates a helper. Verse 18, I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, literally, if you translate it, the word helper translates as according to the one opposite to him. Which is why they put it as helper in English, because that's quite a mouthful. But it does reveal what's going on. According to the one opposite to him, i.e., I'll make a helper, a complementer, someone who fits with him. Because you can't carry the image of God alone. The purpose of being in community is to serve the Lord. And marriage is one great way of doing that. But singleness is another. And so you need to have this idea of being in the image of God, male and female, in the context that it is in in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 of ruling this world, of expanding the kingdom of God. So in simplistic terms, it's slightly simplistic, but it is true. Old Testament, you have to look at the progression in the scriptures. Old Testament, marriage is probably the, the norm. To be unmarried is unusual. To be without children is viewed as a curse. New Testament, probably to be married is the norm, but singleness has enormous advantages, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. And children are great, but having spiritual children is viewed as wonderful. So Paul can say, I have lots of people who are my spiritual children who become Christians. They're my joy. They're my crown. They're what I look forward to in heaven. So you go from sort of the, this is the nuclear family being the norm. New Testament's kind of the norm, but you know, there are real benefits to, to not being in that. To the new heavens and the new earth, glory, the new creation, no marriage between men and women. Genders, yes. Male and female, still male and female in heaven, according to Jesus, Matthew twenty-two thirty. But no marriage between humans and no children being born. Because the, the progression of the scriptures is what we want is, well, we want the kingdom of God to grow. We want believers. And marriage is one useful way of having relationship, having intimacy. But God made us for intimacy. But you have to recognize alongside that, particularly when you get to the New Testament, the greatest passages in the Bible on human love are not marriage. The greatest passages in the New Testament on love are about the church. So again, I did a, a cursory search of uh, wedding sermons I've given. I think I've given uh, just over 50 sermons at weddings. And uh, riding high at number one in the charts is 1 John 4. That's why I've spoken on at more weddings than, the, than any other. Uh, and I love it. It's a beautiful passage. And it's a great thing to have read at a wedding. And it's not about marriage at all. It's about the church. 
That I've spoken quite a few times on 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings. It's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. And it's not at all about marriage. It's about love going wrong. Um, It's about the church. To be fair, number two in my list of things I've spoken on at weddings is Ephesians chapter 5, which is a passage about marriage. And at the end of it, Paul says, marriage. It's just a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. That's what it's really about. So it's not about marriage either in the end. You need to have this greater sense of these relationships, being made in the image of God for relationship, for community, for intimacy, is there, and it's a deep need in all of us, and it's there to help us serve him. Intimacy is there to help us rule. Okay, let's spend the second half of the evening then. Where will you find intimacy? Uh, Two errors, and then three positive things to say. Okay, two errors, Three positive things to say. Error number one, that's the church's error. Then I look at the world's error. And number, error number one is the church's error. I don't, think this is un- I don't think this is controversial to say. The church's error in this regard is to exalt marriage as the only way of finding intimacy. And I think you'd have to say that the church has been guilty of that. The only way you can have intimacy is in a marriage. And of course, the implication is if you're celibate, either by choice or because it hasn't happened for you, then you're lonely. And the Bible does not say that. Some here have said, Do you know, I, I would like to be in a serious relationship, marriage. I'm not fussed about sex, I'm not fussed about the intercourse. But I, I do want a committed, intimate, nurturing relationship with one other. That's what I'd love. I've had those who are heterosexual say that. I've had those who are same-sex attracted say that. Look, I'm not fussed about the intercourse, to be honest. I just want intimacy with someone, a nurturing, intimate relationship. That's what I'd love. And I think Genesis 1 would say... Of course you do. Of course you do. That's hardwired into our souls to desire intimacy with others, with God and others. Of course you do. For some, that quest is found in marriage, in part. For others, it's not and never will be. That's not just true of the church. The stats will tell you, the British Social Survey's attitude will tell you that 36% of the, popula- of the adult population is not married, cohabiting, uh, or in any sort of uh, romantic relationship. So if you think that that's the only place you're going to find intimacy, well, a lot are going to be, well, feel they're missing out. I was away speaking at a church weekend for a church in Birmingham uh, over the weekend. And uh, one guy whose name I'll change, I'll call him Mick, uh, said, uh, well, he told me me about what had been going on and that in the past year, uh, over sort of summer months, May through to September, uh, he had uh, uh, been in a sexual relationship with another bloke uh, and wondered about uh, quitting church altogether. Uh, we were chatting about it, and I said, oh, what's brought you back? 
uh, he'd ended this relationship and come back to church. I said, what's brought you back? Uh, he said two things, really. One, I kept reading the Bible to try and justify what I was doing, and I just couldn't make the Bible say that. So in my head, I, I knew I was in trouble. He said, but in the end, if I'm honest, the friendships I have here at City Church are more precious to me than my lover. Now, he didn't say, oh, I ended this relationship because I love Jesus more than anything else in the world, which is kind of what you always want people to say, but there's honesty there. And I think there's an honesty to the scriptures that we're made for intimacy, but he said, do you know what? I've got better, better, better friendships over here than with this lover. That's the church's error to exalt marriage. What's the world's error? The world's error is not dissimilar, but it assumes that sexual activity is essential if you're going to be intimate with someone. And sometimes it even becomes some sort of euphemism that, uh, particularly in English circles, we're a bit polite. Uh, so we don't you want to use the word sex. So we, re- we sort of substitute intimacy for it. So I someone said with the, uh, not this week, last week, uh, sort of, oh, just general conversation, how's marriage? It's all right. Uh, we haven't had intimacy for a little while. You mean sex? Well, if you want to name it like that, you can call it that. The, um, no, no, I think it's important because sex equals intimacy. No, that's not, a, that's not an equation we believe in. Uh, they are different things. They're one aspect, you know, but they're not the same thing, for goodness sake. Uh, ooh, okay, we'll call it sex. Um, I get, I get there's a sort of politeness to it. But, um, of course, if you run that way, and the world's idea that you can't have intimacy without sex, then, of course, you assume, well, if the Bible tells me I can't have sex with this person, or I can't have sex with them yet, well, then, obviously, I'm missing out. If you think sex is that much... She's no longer uh, here at church. A little while ago, uh, we had a girl coming along to the oddest questions equivalent who was investigating the faith. And uh, early on, I said, what's, what's brought you here? Apart from your friend, you know, your friend's invited you. What's brought you here? And she said, if I'm honest, I'm in my mid-twenties. I've had dozens and dozens of sexual partners I, you know, it's way above 50. I don't know what I'm up to. And I've been chasing something. And I thought that in sex I'd find closeness and intimacy. But I got to the point where I realized every liaison, I'm just giving away a little bit of myself every time. And I thought I'd find intimacy but I find I have, she's a very evocative phrase, this oppressive virginity of the soul. I know it's not what I'm going to, I know it's not where I'm going to find what I'm after. Yeah, you're quite right. That's the world's error, assuming that intimacy comes through sex. So the church's error is to think that intimacy can only come through marriage. The world's error, intimacy comes through sex. Let's say some positive things. Uh, Three little scriptures. You can turn to them if you will, but um, uh, I'm just going to read them and push on, crack on. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So here's a comment on where you find intimacy in singleness. 1 Timothy 5. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Here's the key bit. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, 
younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And for us here, for this congregation, where 9 and 80% are single, here's what you need to know. Treat younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Cherish your church family. God has made us for intimacy, and that drives us to make and enjoy friendships, relationships. As I said, married people look for that intimacy, that community in their family and in the church. And single people will look for it in the church and in their wider nexus friendship group. It's just different. You can keep up with more people when you're single. But we certainly need more of 1 Timothy 5, treating younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters. And please, when there's a lot of young people in the room, don't view every member of the opposite sex as potential. That is dehumanizing. Can we not romanticize every action of affection? Touch is very significant. We need it. And we don't want to get into a culture where, you know, hello, uh, you know, I'd like to, oh, but I mustn't. Um, now, don't be unwise. Look, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to eccentrically demonstrate now. This is just, I love this. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. That would be ridiculous. The, um, uh, it was a joke. It was a joke. Um, now, I'm not, there's no rules. But, you know, a sort of embrace that crushes the chest and you hold it in and, you know, for 10 minutes, you know, that's a bit different from a, uh, a quick, uh, quick kiss, you know, a quick work kiss of hello. Don't be ridiculous, but don't be obsessive about it. Don't be naive. Don't want to be ambiguous. But touch is so important. Everyone needs hugs, even if you're English. <laughs> I mean, some cultures need them more, but everyone does. When Jesus touches people, it's really significant. You've got to have friends of the opposite sex. You've got to. Look, I'm bound to get in trouble for this, but let me say it anyway. I, um, I observe the pendulum swings pretty hard on the whole dating, marriage, and age thing. Some of you have committed about 150 people filled in that little survey about what's the best age to get married. I mean, there's no best age as such. But I observe, when I was a university student, look, I'm going to caricature just so you understand it, but they are caricatures, all right, as well, I'll get in trouble. The, um, when I was a university student, basically the advice from older people went a bit like this. Stay single for the gospel. Single for the gospel is best. Single for the gospel, you can do more for Jesus. Jesus was single. You want to be like Jesus? Be single. Um, if you're going to get married, for goodness sake, at least wait until you're 30 years old so you have a good 20 years of being single, a good 10 years of being actively single for the gospel. That was the default setting. Okay? Well, this is, you know, when I was a student three years ago. Um, <laughs> 23 years ago. Okay? That was the default setting. I was away with a bunch of students at uh, the beginning of January, not uh, uh, primarily from this church, and it was very striking. They said, they hear a lot, get married as soon as you can. If you marry as a university student, great. Otherwise, if you have to wait until you've graduated, okay, that's okay, but married, get married. You're get, getting married, that's the best. And one girl, she was 24, she said, I'm 24, some of my friends have got married, I'm feeling like an old maid. You're 24! I couldn't spell girlfriend when I was 24. <laughs> Neither, so don't mishear me, 
I'm not saying it's wrong to get married age 20 or wait until you're 30. Both are great, all is wonderful. But to insist on one as being really godly and the other as not, oh, the pendulum just swings and it swings too far the other way. I get a little nervous about a Christian subculture which only looks at the opposite sex as if they're marriable or not. And thinks, well, I'd quite like to date her, but um, well, I'm not entirely 100% certain I'm going to marry her, so I can't ask her out. Oh, for goodness sake. Relax. Relax. When I was younger, and I was once, when I was younger, <laughs> I was given two... This is terrific advice on dating, okay? Two questions to have in your mind when you're dating someone. Two questions. Here they are. If the relationship ends, one, did we both grow as Christians while we were dating? Two, I'm a bloke, so put it in these terms. Did you honor her? Emotionally and physically. So physically, you didn't go further than you should have done. Emotionally, you didn't make her think you were further on. You didn't make her think, assume that you were going to push for a commitment. You didn't make her emotionally dependent upon you or spiritually dependent upon you. Did you honor her? And if the answer to both those questions is yes, yes, we both grew, and yes, I honored her. There's nothing I regret we we did physically. I don't feel embarrassed when I see her. I can see her, and it's fine. If you can answer yes to both those questions, even if you've gone out for two years and it ends, that's a good relationship. It's good. It's honoured the Lord. You can celebrate it. Well done. You don't say, oh, it failed. You say it was good, but we didn't move to marriage. So enjoy friendships. Enjoy friendships with one another when you're single. Dating, I think, has lots of uses. You learn social skills that are lacking. You learn how to relate to the opposite sex if you don't know them so well. You learn what's missing and where you ought to be growing in order to be ready for marriage, and some could do with that. The, um, there are lots of good things about it, but relax. If you're dating in your early 20s, don't, don't panic if the answer to both those questions is going to be yes. Dating friendships are good. Don't have lots of exclusive time. Don't go on holiday together. That's very unwise. Don't become dependent upon one another. That's foolish when there's no commitment. But dating friendships are good. Enjoy them. That's a word while single. A comment uh, to the marrieds on uh, intimacy and where you find it. Uh, Let's just turn to Matthew 19, verse 6. Familiar words because they appear in every marriage ceremony. Matthew 19, 6, in the context of talking about divorce and remarriage, Jesus says, The married couple, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is permanent. The modern mantra of I must be true to myself destroys marriage. For people say... I'm finding this marriage hard work. They are not helping me grow. They are not helping me maximize my potential. Therefore, I must be true to myself and get out. And so people talk nonsense. People say, oh, love should be free and fulfilling. If someone's cramping me, not helping me be myself, the moral thing to do is to get out of the relationship. And people talk piffle. Oh, if we stay together, 
when we're not getting on. The hypocrisy will pollute the children. Now, sometimes in a marriage, the phrase sometimes, I must be true to myself, equals I must betray others. I had a friend recently uh, in his mid-40s, not a Christian man, but a bit confused, a bit upset. He'd been for dinner with his uh, two children, uh, 17 and 21. He has uh, left his wife and uh, moved in with another woman and her family, and they're buying a new house together. And he said, look, I've, I'm, I've bought this five, I'm going to buy this five-bedroom house, and we've got the, her and her two kids, and, and you can move in as well, uh, and it'll be, we'll be a lovely, happy family together, this new family unit. Uh, and uh, they said, well, we don't want that. Uh, he said, well, look, you need to understand, after all these years, I owe it to myself. I deserve to be happy with this new woman. And the older of the two, the female, the girl, age 21, to be honest, Dad, I think you're a selfish B-A-S-T-A-R-D. You've got to be true to yourself. You deserve to be happy. Well, that makes us miserable. Well done. It's permanent marriage. And the problem is whether we've got so much choice in relationships. Ah, I forgot to bring it. This, uh, I read the, uh, it was about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I got to see uh, the Saturday magazine, the Saturday Times uh, magazine, uh, full of these uh, millennials, uh, uh, girls in their mid-twenties, all of them saying, do you know what, we can't find Mr. Right. You know, when there's so much choice out there, it's quite hard to settle down. Uh, I, I keep, I'm with a boyfriend, and I think, well, he's quite good, but there might be someone else better out there, and, and uh, I can't settle with him because I, I, I could find someone else better. And this is the constancy of choice. And No, you commit. It's not that complicated. Find someone, you commit, that's it. Is there someone better out there? Not a sensible question. At the heart of the Christian faith is sacrificial love. That's what you see on the cross of Jesus Christ, sacrificial love. And yet for many people, that's a category error in the 21st century. Sacrificial love? Huh? Well, if I'm true to myself, it's all about me. If I'm true to myself, I must be happy in this relationship. Why would I sacrifice? That's like hard work. Why would I do that? No, I, I, I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to sacrifice. Well, I'm just very glad Jesus didn't feel that way. Sacrificial love is at the heart of the Christian faith. And when you've committed to someone, you love them. Last positive thing to say, 1 John 4. Here we go. We've finally made it. Uh, 1 John 4 that we had read at the beginning. John is addressing the church, the church family. Let me just read the first few verses again. 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. But here's the key. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Church, this is love. Just as God sacrificed his one and only son for you and for me, though we were utterly undeserving, not because we deserved it, that's love. Because God has loved us in that way. So we love one another. You never get intimacy without cost. You never get great community without sacrifice. You don't. You can't. So you and I have a choice. Do we want freedom? Autonomy? I look at my diary this week and I think I will do whatever I want. We get an invite from Facebook. Will you come to my 25th birthday drinks? And there are three buttons. Yes, no, and the devil's button. (laughs) Maybe. Because it's, yeah, I'll come unless I get a better offer. I might come if I feel like it. Thursday night, me, I might be tired, so maybe. No, look, in all, yes, no, those are both sensible options. Maybe. You never get intimacy without cost, you never get community without sacrifice. Sacrificial love is at the heart of the Christian faith. Christ has sacrificed himself for you. Dear friends, since God so loved us, that's the way we ought to love one another. You and I are made for intimacy. We all need it. We're made for it. It's a good thing. Intimacy. That is emotional closeness. We need it. We're made for it. God gives it to us to help us do the job of growing his kingdom. We need it, and it always requires sacrificial love. In a marriage, in friendships, like Jesus loves us. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, you know us. You made us. You know precisely who we are and what we require. Father, thank you for the the obvious truths of your word. You have made us for one another. We're not meant to live this life alone. Self-fulfillment is impossible. You've made us to be in community like you, Father, Son, Spirit, are in community with one another. Father, help us to pursue that wisely. Father, will we be those who are willing to love one another sacrificially so that in the church there's great intimacy between individuals and commitment, in our friendships, in our marriages? Would we know this intimacy so we can serve you better? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.